Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord on Wednesday night. Amen. It's good to be back in the great state of Oklahoma. Amen. I preached in Kansas last Sunday. Enjoyed my time, but I'm glad to be back home. Amen. There's not a lot in Kansas, Brother Jeff. I was, I was driving and uh, I had it on my GPS and my GPS said three minutes to go until destination. And I kid you not, I'm looking around and I'm thinking... There is no destination three minutes from here. I can see, I can see ten minutes from here. <laughs> and there's nothing out here. And then all of a sudden we drop down a steep hill and sure enough, there's a town of about 3,000 people and uh, I made it to my destination. So, amen. You never, somehow that's going to preach one day. I don't know, but amen. We are, we are in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to continue our study tonight. You know you've been teaching the book of 1 Corinthians for a long time when instead of writing Revelation, you write 1 Corinthians on your notes. But we are not in the book of 1 Corinthians any longer. We are in the book of Revelation. Amen. Would you, would you help me pray over this? Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity in your house Lord, to hear from your word, I ask that you would help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Jesus, help me to say something worth saying to these precious people. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground and help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Revelation chapter 1. We introduce the book last week, and um, we got a little bit into it. We, we went three verses into it, kind of an introduction. Tonight is the introduction, if you will, to it's John's introduction to the readers of the book, and we're going to dive into that. One thing I wanted to remind us from last week, and I'll probably remind us often, is that the book of Revelation, according to the third verse of chapter 1. Revelation is a book intended to be a blessing, not uh, a fear-mongering book. It is not designed to give you anxiety. It is not designed to give you increased worry. It literally is designed to be a blessing. The third verse says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in. It's the only book in the Bible that comes with a specific blessing 
to those that read it, to those that listen to it, and to those that obey the things that are in it. So I really don't understand tonight why people avoid the book of Revelation when there's such a specific blessing that's given uh, at the very beginning of the book. Amen. Not intended to to scare us, it's intended to be a blessing. With that being understood, and I'll remind us of that frequently as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to look tonight at verses 4 through verse 8 of the book of Revelation. Amen. Let's read verse 4 real quick. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne. Amen. As I was saying, here in this portion we have, if you will, the official beginning to the book of Revelation. It's His greeting to the people that He is writing to, to the churches that He is writing to. He says that He's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now we know from history, biblical history, that there were more than just seven churches in this area, but John specifically wrote to these seven churches. There was a specific word that was given to them, and later on we're going to glean from the words that were written to these specific churches. Um, it says to the churches that are in Asia, uh, what that actually is, like in our mind when we think of Asia, we, we're thinking China and that kind of thing. But this is actually Middle East that it's talking about, more uh, along the lines of modern-day Turkey is where this is located. We know that Paul was the original founder of the church in Ephesus, but Paul eventually was martyred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. After he was martyred, John then becomes the bishop or the overseer of the church there. Under his leadership, the other churches outside of Ephesus and around Ephesus were started. So they're, they're almost like daughter works, if you will. It was under his guidance, his leadership, that these churches sprung up all over the place. Paul opens this with the classic apostolic greeting, the typical apostolic greeting of the day. He says, grace and peace be unto you. Paul uses this often. Grace, we know, is the beginning of our walk with God. Um, it's the start of our walk with God. Grace is unmerited favor, but it's more than unmerited favor. It's Grace is a helping that comes along. It's something that helps us in our walk with God. So he says, grace be unto you. And then he says, peace. And we know what peace is. We've, we've studied it before. This is talking about peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with people. This is the ultimate culmination, if you will, of your walk with God. This is the result of your walk with God. Grace is how you start your walk with God. Peace is what you get from your walk with God. And John greets them with this traditional apostolic greeting that I love so much. Grace and peace be unto you. Amen. Then he says, which is, which was, which is to come. Or it could be read this way, which is coming. Which is, which was, which is coming. Someone is coming. Um, we know that this is talking about Jesus here. 
He says, grace and peace be unto you from him which is and which was and which is to come. Talking about Jesus. This Paul or John talks here of the self-existent one. The one that is in existence from the beginning. They knew that Jesus was. That's why we start out with it kind of seems like it's out of order. It should have been who was and is and is to come. Instead, it says who is, who was, and who is to come. Why? Because we're talking about Jesus. And the people that he's talking to knew that Jesus was or that is. He is somebody. He rose from the dead. They have an understanding of Jesus. And then he tacks on this extra revelation. Not only is Jesus, but Jesus was from the beginning. So he ties Jesus, if you will, to the eternally self-existent one. So we know that part of, and we talked about last week, right? What is revelation? Revelation is an unveiling. It's a revealing. So what is, this isn't John's revelation. This is Jesus's revelation. It's Jesus's unveiling, his revealing. The author here is revealing Jesus to us. So we see here, this is a revelation of the oneness of God as much as anything else. The reality is that Jesus was self-existent, that he is the eternal God from the beginning. Many uh, in that day didn't really have a good grasp on that understanding. They didn't understand that he had always been. In fact, when uh, the Pharisees were talking to Jesus and they were talking about Abraham, what did Jesus reply? He said, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus says, I was there before Abraham even was. And they said, well, how can it be? You're standing in front of us. You're only 30 years old. They didn't truly understand what Jesus was trying to reveal to them, but he was trying to reveal to them that he is the self-existent one. Amen. Before Abraham was, I am. God told Moses through the burning bush, he said, I am that I am. He just is. And so he ties himself. Uh, the, we could do a whole study on the many I am statements of Jesus. He said, I am the true vine. I am the truth and the life. He said, I am. He tied himself to that self-existent God from the Old Testament. There's only one God and his name is Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. We're oneness people. And what was happening here is a revelation was unfolding to the church of just who exactly Jesus was. He was a man, but not just a man. He was a prophet, but not just a prophet. He was more than those things. He was the self-existent God from the beginning. And you say, well, this is a great mystery. And it is a great mystery, no doubt. I have no problem with that, uh, with that language. It is a mystery how God robed himself in flesh. But I love what Paul said, um, talking about that mystery. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16, and those of us who have been raised in, around this, we could probably quote it, but he said, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So Paul says, I'm not, that's not even arguable. Of course it's a great mystery. 
Nobody's arguing whether or not it's a mystery how God did it. And then Paul breaks down the mystery. He says, God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the spirit. God was seen of angels. God was preached unto the Gentiles. God was believed on in the world. And God was received up into glory. So Paul ties Jesus to the self-existent God of the Old Testament. He says God was manifested, robed in flesh and dwelt among us. And he said that God was received up into glory. So there's no confusion in Paul's mind of who Jesus is. But Paul had to receive the revelation just like everybody else. And so Paul here, or John rather, in the book of Revelation, he's getting a, a deep understanding of who Jesus really is, just like Paul had a deep understanding. Not only is Jesus the God who is, he's the God who's always been, and not only that, but he's the God that's coming again. He's the God that's on His way back to get His people to take us out of this world. He's not a God that just always existed and then existed in the days of the Bible. He's the God who exists now, today, and the God who's going to come back again for His people. We have that promise from the Word of God. Amen. And then... Um, John points out that there are seven spirits of God. Now, there are many thoughts on what these represent. I'm actually going to deal with these later on in chapter 5 because they're mentioned again. Uh, but right here, so that there's no confusion, we'll just suffice it to say, that is not talking about seven separate self-existent spirits that are around the throne. We know that there's one spirit. There's one God. But it's talking... It, it, I don't want to, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but what he, I believe that he's talking about with the seven spirits of God is seven manifestations. So there's the spirit of prophecy. And then there are seven other uh, spirits like that that is mentioned. I believe that's what that is, but we're going to leave that for another day and uh, just hold on to that thought and we'll get to it in chapter five. Let's look at verse number five of chapter one. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. First, let's look at that, that phrase there. He is the faithful witness. And Jesus is the faithful witness. What is faithful? Faithful is trustworthy. Faithful is reliable. Faithful is trustworthy, reliable, and he is a faithful, trustworthy, reliable witness. Um, a witness is the strongest form of argument in the court of law. If you've got a witness against you, it's almost impossible to win that case. If you've got a witness for you, it's almost impossible to lose that one, especially if it's an eyewitness. It's pretty much case closed. It's a strong thing. So the only way to get past the testimony of a witness, if you're in the court and you're arguing against somebody and you've got a witness on the stand who witnessed whatever it is that, that we're trying to decide in the court, the only way to get around that testimony, because that is pretty much a locked in, settled thing, once you've got a witness, is you've got to discredit the witness. You can't discredit the testimony, you've got to discredit the witness. Amen. So that's the only way to get around that. But what do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the one that's not discreditable. 
You can't discredit him. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. Jesus is a faithful witness, not capable of being discredited. Another, so that's one way of witnessing. The other way of witnessing is speaking or preaching. And Jesus came into the world to be a witness unto the world so that they would be assigned to the world. We'll look at a couple of scriptures. John chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify and that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. So Jesus talks about how he's being a witness of the things of God and the people of Israel are not receiving what he has to say. John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So Jesus said, I am here because I am a witness of a reality. I am a witness of the God of heaven. So he is the faithful witness that we, that we find in scripture that we talk about. Here, he's the faithful witness. It's kind of his role as prophet there. And then the scripture goes from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the reliable one, um, to the firstborn of the dead. The word firstborn is also found in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So this is talking about Jesus. This is meant in the same way that Revelation 2.13 is meant. What is Revelation 2.13? It's where it's written that Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning. So was, does that mean that Jesus was literally on a cross from the beginning of the world until now? No. It means that in the mind of God, the plan of God was already in existence from the beginning. Before uh, God spoke anything into existence, he had a plan from, from, from all the way early back then. And Jesus, or the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. In the same way that Jesus was crucified from the beginning of the world, so Jesus existed in the beginning of the world in the mind of God or in the plan of God. Am I making sense? I hope that I am. We're going to go, we're going to break it down a little bit further. So check this out. When God created Adam, he had Jesus in mind. That's what Paul is saying when he says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. We know Adam is the actual first created man to ever exist. But Adam was formed through the blueprint, the plan that was in the mind of God. Who was the blueprint? Who was the plan? It was Jesus. God was looking through time and he saw Jesus and that's how he formed Adam in the image of Jesus. I can prove it to you in the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 5 verse 14. Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. So Jesus wasn't even, he wasn't around, he wouldn't be around for thousands of years, and yet Paul says that Adam was formed in the beginning with Jesus in mind. So we were created in the image of God in more ways than one. Amen. In the image of God. In the image of who? In the image of Jesus. So God from the beginning knew that he was going to come and robe himself as a man. Jesus Christ. He was calling Jesus God from the very beginning. Amen. 
So this is how Jesus is firstborn of all creation in the mind of God. But here we have Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. This is not in the mind of God or in the plan of God. This is literally he was the first one to die and then rise again with a resurrected body, the first fruits of the dead. In our study of 1 Corinthians, we talked about this. Others have risen from the dead. Um, we know from the Old Testament there were several that rose from the dead. In the New Testament there were several that rose from the dead. But every one of them have the same thing in common. That is, they rose from the dead and they still had their physical body. And eventually they died again. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead because when he rose from the dead, he rose with a glorified body, a body that was incorruptible. He rose different than the rest. He rose never to die again. Amen. He's the firstborn. So what is that? That is hope, if you will, for you and I. That's hope of a resurrection. Because Jesus died and was risen and, and rose again with a new glorified body, we have hope that one day, whether Jesus comes back and gets us or whether we go by way of the grave, we have hope that we're going to be able to rise one day because he did it. He was the first one. He was the one that went before everyone else that prove that it was possible. Amen. Glory to God for that. But there's more. Not only does firstborn mean um, that he rose first, and it literally means that he rose first, but also the firstborn is a place of honor. And it's a place of authority. In the, in the Old Testament, the, the firstborn was the inheritor of all the father's wealth. And so Jesus, we find, has a place of honor, a place of, of, of authority. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Here we go. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What that tells us is that Jesus was literally presented a prize. There was, there was glory, there was honor, there was authority that was going to come through him dying on a cross, through him being willing to submit to death. We look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I feel like I'm going really fast and I apologize. This kind of just excites me, this stuff. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. So we've got Jesus uh, in the in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And then in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, we find, wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when it says that he was the firstborn of the dead, not only does that mean that he's the one who went before us and so proves that it's possible, but that means that there's an inheritance that he gets because he was the first one that was able to go sinless and then die and then rise from the dead. Amen. And his prize, what did he get? He was exalted higher. Literally, the, the phrase in the Greek is higher than ever before. 
No one has ever been exalted as high as Jesus is exalted. Amen. That's why there can't be this fictitious thing that we call a trinity. Because if there is, the Father's never been exalted as high as Jesus is exalted. And the Holy Ghost has never been exalted as high as Jesus has been exalted. Because the Bible says that Jesus was exalted higher than ever before. No one's ever been exalted that high. Amen. It's almost like the Father and the Holy Ghost and Jesus are all the same. Amen. And then he says, unto him that loved us. And to me, this is one of the greatest revelations in the entire Bible. It's actually written, um, it, it doesn't read that way in the King James Version, but it's actually written in the present continual sense. So it's not um, him that loved us, past tense. It's him that loves us, present continual. It's continuing. He loves us today. He loves us tomorrow. He's going to continue to love us unto him that loves us. This is the comfort of all Christians everywhere that serve Jesus Christ. We serve a God that loves us. I want, I don't know if you, if you truly understand how unique of an idea it is that we serve a God that loves us. If you study um, philosophy, if you study the religions of the world, if you study all the deities that men have ever created or come up with from the beginning of time until now, what you'll find that they all have in common is they're all sinful deities, sinful beings. They're all angry deities. Um, none of them have love for people. You can't even imagine a God like Zeus or a Roman or Greek God that would love people. It's not possible. That idea is foreign to God's with the little g of the world. But our God, it stands in contrast to every other God in the world. We serve a God that loves us. That's mind-blowing. That's a mind-blowing revelation. If you take that to somebody um, who is serving another deity, another God, um, even, in the, even in the realm of Islam, they don't believe that, that uh, Allah loves them the way that we believe that Jesus loves us. Amen. Jesus loves us. It's a, it's a crazy revelation. Amen. And what's, what's crazier than just the revelation that he loves us, because it's, it, and it's, and it's unfathomable, it's hard to grasp the idea that, that a God loves us, but even more unfathomable than that, here goes the, the, the next stage of the revelation of God's love, is the fact that His love is inseparable. See, people, we fall in and out of love all the time. We find people that we love one day and then we don't love the next. I've got books that I'm really in love with one day and then the next day I'm like, well, that whole three chapters I just read was trash. You know, we've got sports teams that we're really in love with one year and then the next year we're not. Uh, ladies have got clothes and shoes that they're really in love with and then by the time they get home, they're no longer in love with. Amen. We fall in and out of love all the time. So our idea of what love constitutes is kind of skewed. But Jesus loves with an inseparable love. A love that it's impossible to break. It's, it's bound with ties that cannot be broken. Amen. He loves us with a love that lasts. So let's read. I know you've read it before, but we're going to read it again in the context of Jesus loves us. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That loves us. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able, here we go, to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus loves us with a love that is unbreakable and inseparable. You say, well, I've messed up too many times. See, what we do is we view the love of God in terms of human love. And when we mess up with one another, we beat ourselves up and we think so-and-so is, and that's one thing that a child, you've got to be careful how you handle a child because they're sensitive and when you get on to them they might feel like that that love is separable that there's a breaking point that's going to come with that and so we deal with that all of our lives we kind of take that insecurity with us throughout our lives and we even bring it to God and we think when we trip and when we fall uh oh Jesus might not love us anymore so what do we do we start hiding from God we, we decide we, won't, we don't want to pray anymore we don't need to pray anymore we might hide, our, hide ourselves even from the people of God. But my Bible says Jesus loves us with a love that is inseparable. That means you can mess up and Jesus is still going to love you. Is he going to think what you did is wrong? Yes. Is he going to hate the sin that you committed? Yes. Is he still going to love you? Absolutely. He loves us with a love that is inseparable. Amen. That's why in, in the Bible, I, I love how it says it. You know what it says about God? It just says God is love. Right. It's his nature. It's his essence. We can't have love without God. God is love. Amen. That's so vastly different, the idea of the Christian God. Thank God that we serve a God that loves us continually even today. You ought not let condemnation keep you from the presence of God or the house of God. You ought not let it happen. Amen. You ought to decide that if I messed up, the church is exactly where I need to be. If I trip and fall, that's whenever I need to be in the house of God around the people of God the most. Because God loves us. He's going to help us pick us up and get us going. Amen. When a, when a child is in trouble, um, parents can testify to this. When your child is in trouble, you don't love the child less. I heard, I heard Brother Arnold use this illustration. You don't love that child less when that child's in trouble. You love that child more because now that child's in, in trouble and that child needs your help. And you're ready as a parent to wrap your arms around the child and you just want to deal with the problem and you want to fix the situation. And you think that your love, the, the love of a, of a sinful fallen uh, humanity is stronger or, or, or bound tighter than the love of God? No. If you love your child more when your child messes up because you want to help your child and you want to make sure that you get them back on the right road, how much more does the love of God, is the love of God for us? Amen. So when we fall, when we mess up, we need to run to Jesus. Amen. And not from him. So he loves us. And then here we go. Washed us from our sins. I love this. In his own blood. 
as amazing and as deep and as awesome as the revelation of the love of God is, this next revelation exceeds that. It's even greater than that. Because not only does Jesus love us with a continual, unseparable love, He didn't just wash us with any blood of, of a goat or a lamb or, or, or of some other spotless lamb. It was precious blood that washed us. It was His own blood that He washed us. What does that mean? That means the God that pre-existed, the God that's been in existence from the beginning the God that's had a plan from the beginning not plan B but plan A he from the very beginning decided that he was going to robe himself in flesh and die for sinful humanity with his own blood he washed us that's a great revelation Amen. Someone might could convince you that there was other gods in the world because I said that, that it's unique to Christianity that we serve a God that loves. Someone might come along and try to convince us and persuade us that there are other gods in the world that do actually love us. But you will not find a God anywhere in the, in any book, anywhere, any religion in this world from the beginning of time until now that claims a God that was willing to come to earth and die for sinful humanity. Humanity. Amen. That's the unique greatness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look at verse number six really quickly. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. This is an allusion to the millennial reign of Christ where we will be both kings and priests. Um, we talked about this the other night in our home, but uh, too many times we think that we're, we're literally going from this world to heaven. And then it's going to be just a 24-hour worship service all day, all the time, and that's heaven. We, there's more. The Bible says that we're going to reign as kings and as priests. There's going to be a millennial reign. There's a thousand-year reign where the, the believers that are saved are going to reign with Jesus Christ over a world for a thousand years. And Jesus has made us kings. Kings is our relationship to other people. We are going to rule with Christ. Priest is our relationship to Jesus. We're going to serve him as priest for those thousand years. And then it says that his dominion, his reign is going to be an everlasting dominion, an everlasting reign. Jesus will never be conquered. Empires come and empires go. Kings are set up and kings fall down. But guess what? God's the one who's doing the, the, the putting up and the pulling down. Presidents are elected and presidents are unelected and they're taken down. God's the one that's shuffling the pieces in the world. And guess what? Whenever he becomes uh, the king, whenever his reign is complete, it's going to be everlasting. It's never going to see an end. And I can't wait for that day. People ask me what I'm looking forward to most about heaven or about that day, that's what I'm looking forward to. I am so sick and tired of, of evil rulers and evil people in our world today. I'm so sick of it. I'm sick of a world that is manipulated by the powers that be. I cannot wait for a reign, for a time where Jesus is King and Lord of all and it's His commandment and His law that is going to reign across the land. Amen. An everlasting dominion, an everlasting kingdom. And we're going to talk more about the millennial reign as we study the book of Revelation. It's going to be a great time later on. Verse number 7. 
Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, even so. Amen. So when you read this question that comes to mind, and it must be answered is, is this the rapture, or is this the second coming? A lot of times we confuse the two. Um, when you, when you talk to people, they almost use the term, uh, when you talk to Christians, we almost use those terms interchangeably. But the truth is that those are two separate events. There's the rapture of the church, and then there's the second coming of the church. What is the rapture? The rapture is the calling away of the church. Let's look at, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That phrase there, caught up, literally means snatched away or stolen away. So the rapture of the church literally is going to happen. And we talked about it, I don't know if it was last week or the week before last, but literally in the blink of an eye, before a light can get to the iris, from the iris to the retina, that's how quickly we're going to be gone. The church is out of here. That's the rapture. And the implication is not everyone is going to see Jesus on that day. Just the church, just those that have been born again of water and of spirit are going to see Jesus on that day. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to go from this world to the next world. Amen. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we're, we who are alive and remain are going to meet them in the air. Meet him in the air. So that's one event that's called the rapture. Um, the same thing takes place, uh, not the rapture per se, but this idea that God removes the righteous before judgment occurs happens uh, previously in the Bible. We see it with Noah before um, the Lord destroyed the earth in Genesis with a flood. God prepared a way for Noah to escape the flood. Noah and his family escaped the flood. And then we look later on and we've got Lot and he's in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And literally God is going to destroy the city. And uh, the Bible says that God was willing for 50 righteous, for 40 righteous and so on, all the way down to 10 righteous. He was going to save the city if they could just find you know, 10 righteous people in the city. But they were unable to find that. All that was there was was a lot in his family. And so before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he do? He called Lot out of the city. He pulled the righteous out of the city, and then the city was destroyed with fire. So we have those two examples. So in the last day, what's going to happen is the same thing. Um, we're going to be raptured out of here. God's going to pull the righteous from the earth, and then judgment upon the earth can commence. Amen. So the rapture and the second coming are two different events. The, the, I've just described the rapture. Now let's describe the second coming. The second coming occurs after the, the tribulation, and that's when we will come back with the Lord uh, and rescue Israel at Armageddon. That's when every eye is going to see 
the Lord. Amen. It's that second coming that happens when Jesus comes back on his white horse with all of uh, the saints of God and we uh, rescue Israel from their fate um, at Armageddon. And we're going to talk about that more as we continue through the book of Revelation. But I wanted to point out a couple of things before we continue. The first thing here is, is he says, every eye is going to see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. There's this, um, uh, the, the word I'm looking for, vindication. There's this vindication that John feels as he's writing this. And you can almost feel it in his spirit as he's writing this. He's so excited at the appearing of the Lord. Every eye is going to see him. What is he, what, why is he pulling that out? He's drawing that from the Old Testament, but really it's his heart that he's writing. Every eye is going to see him. What does he mean? He means that every mocker Every person that made fun of Christians, that persecuted Christians, that said that what we believe is is foolish, um, that it's just a myth, that it's crazy. John, you can feel his heart as he says, every eye is going to see him. And they that pierced him are going to look at him. And he says, and all the kindreds of the earth are going to well because of him. Because of who? Because of Jesus. Because of the realization that he really is uh, the God of the universe. And the Christians really were right. And they really were preaching the truth. There's a vindication that's going to come one day. Don't give up on your fight, uh, on your walk with God today. There's going to come a day when you will be vindicated before the entire world. When the entire world is going to stand there and they're going to look at Jesus and you're going to have that vindication in your heart that I was right in trusting in Jesus. I was right in believing Him. Amen. And believing His Word. There's that vindication that's going to come. And lastly, we look at Verse number eight, which is kind of a restating of something that was stated earlier. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Here we go. Which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is the one talking. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the alphabet. Jesus is saying he's the first, he's the last, he's the beginning and the ending. And here's the implication. He's everything in between. You can't have anything without Jesus. He's one and the same. So you really have got to do some mental jumping jacks and gymnastics in order to create a trinity here. Because Jesus says he's the first and the last. He Everything is contained. What did 1 Corinthians say? Jesus became all in all. Amen. It's all in him. That old song that we sing. There's not any room for any other. There's just Jesus which is, which was, and which is to come. And we discussed that earlier. But in closing, if the music would like to come, uh, I'm going to close and we're going to deal with this last thought that Jesus references. He says that he is the Almighty. Jesus says that he's the Almighty. Now let's look at this. He says, not an Almighty. I'm not one of the Almighty. Jesus said he is the Almighty. None other but him. Let's look at this word, almighty. 48 times 
in the Old Testament. The term Almighty is used referencing God. Twice it's used by God Himself speaking of Himself. Let's look at this. Matthew, uh, we're going to read Matthew 28, 18. First, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I've joked about this before, but if all power was given unto Jesus, and there really is two more up there, they're powerless. Or it's all in Jesus. Because all power was given unto him. Now look at this. These are the two verses in the Old Testament where God references himself as the Almighty. Genesis 17 and 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, Here we go. I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Genesis 35 and 11. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. God in the Old Testament said that He was the Almighty. That's His position, that's His title, that's His alone. And then all of a sudden in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes along and guess who uses that title? Jesus does. And Jesus says, I am the Almighty. There is not a Jewish person in that time who wouldn't have immediately, when Jesus said that He was the Almighty, drawn, their mind would have went all the way back to the Old Testament and realized there's only one God in all of the universe who says that they're the Almighty. And Jesus just claimed to be that God. There is no confusion here. The term is used eight times in the book of Revelation. And every time the term is used, it's used to refer to Jesus and only Jesus and nobody but Jesus. Jesus is the almighty God. There's nobody beside him. If you're praying to anybody else, you're praying to just just air. Nothing else out there. If you want to touch God, who do you got to go to? You've got to go to Jesus, the almighty God. As we study the book of Revelation, what is the book of Revelation? It's the unveiling of Jesus, the revealing of Jesus. You can't properly understand this book until you understand who Jesus is. Until you understand that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and His name revealed to us for all eternity is Jesus. I wonder if you could stand with me. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. I'm I'm so looking forward to the rest of the unveiling of Jesus. I'm thankful that I know who Jesus is. I'm thankful that God loved us enough to robe Himself in flesh and die on a cross for us. I'm thankful I know who Jesus is. I wonder if you could just take a little bit of time wherever you're at, if you want to do it where you're sitting or if you want to come to the front, the altar's open. Let's, let's find some time and let's just thank God for revealing Himself to us. Thank you, Jesus.